From the virtual newsroom, this is The Pod Couple. I'm J.D. Mullane, columnist for the Bucks County Courier Times and in New Jersey, the Burlington County Times. And I'm Phil John Ficaro, columnist for The Intelligencer and also columnist for the Burlington County Times. Our headline today, a memoir of the life of Burlington County's one-armed surgeon. As a young man, the late Dr. Morris Robbins of Burlington County planned to be a surgeon, but in August 1935, he stopped to render aid at a traffic accident on Route 541. He stepped on a down power line. 33,000 volts shot through him. He lost his left arm below his elbow and never fully regained use of his right hand. Yet, he became a skilled orthopedic surgeon, saving the limbs of scores of patients who had been advised by other doctors to amputate. With the devastating injury that would have defeated most of us, why didn't he give up on his dream? And how did he do it? Our guest today is Dorothy Robbins Talavera, daughter of Doc Robbins, as he was known throughout Burlington County in the 50 years he practiced medicine there. Welcome, Doc. Thank you. Uh, let's begin with this uh, beautiful memoir your father wrote. It's called The uh, Life and Times of a One-Armed Surgeon. I'll put it up there if you can see it. It's, uh, oop, there you go. Available on uh, on Amazon. Um, and uh, you, your dad's book uh, remained unpublished uh, for 25 years. He wrote it uh, in the early to mid-1990s. Um, tell us why he wrote it and why he didn't have it published and why you decided to get it out to the public. My dad loved to write. And as he um, neared his retirement years, he was given a gift of a word processor, which opened up all kinds of creative juices. And so he'd always had the idea that he wanted to record his memories about Burlington County, about Jacksonville, and and his ideas. So the word processor, which was then replaced by a Mac, just he could he could do it himself. He would hold the pencil in his deformed hand, and with the eraser end of the pencil, he could he could compose, he could write, he could edit, he could print off as many copies as he wanted. And so he that was one of the many, many things he wrote. And he would give copies of this as Christmas presents to various members of the family, but it was just text. That's all he had the capacity to do then. And he never published it because that really wasn't what was important to him about that particular memoir. And, and I don't think he had any idea about how to do it. So um, it stayed there for years and years and years. And then when he passed and I bought the family home and moved in and started going through the filing cabinets, I found the most fascinating documents that supported and really gave a different voice to the story that he had written. So I just started fiddling with it and adding pictures and then looking things up. And before I knew it, I had a project. And now, of course, the nature of publishing is that you can do it yourself, kind of like music. You used to need a big recording contract, but now you can you can do it yourself. And I found a a printer who worked very well with me. And next thing I know, I've got a book and it's been 
it's been well received. I have been truly touched by how people are 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 uh, enjoying this book. Dorothy, uh, Dorothy, you know, children children are a curious lot. What are your earliest memories of your dad when you kind of realized he wasn't like everybody else's dad because of his accident? <laughs> I thought. I thought that's what all men looked like. I, I knew that uh, when when children grow up, their bodies change, and I figured that's what happened to little boys when they grow up. Never occurred to me that he was different from anybody. Else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Dorothy, your dad was. Um, it, it took him uh, several years to recover and recuperate. Yes. And uh, he never gave up on his dream of becoming a doctor, but he yeah. was rejected by medical schools across the country. Eventually, he was accepted by the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Tell us how that happened. That's an interesting story. Of course, he started college uh, four years later than he intended to. And as a result of all of this hospitalization and surgery, so he went to, uh, he commuted to the University of Pennsylvania and uh, took pre-med. And then when it was time to graduate, his, the University of Pennsylvania rejected him along with everybody else. Um, and he saved all of his rejection letters. That's how I know how painful it must have been for him. But he got a letter from the University of Virginia saying, well, you look kind of interesting, but we're full right now. I'm, we're going to put you on a waiting list. So one day he and a friend decided that they were going to drive to Virginia to make good on, on the promise, to, to talk to the folks at Virginia and see what they could work out. But back in those days, there was no I-95. And so heading from Jacksonville, New Jersey to Virginia, you had to go right through the heart of Baltimore. And there was traffic. And they were stuck in traffic. And they looked up and they were in front of the University of Maryland Medical School in Baltimore. So my dad said, pull over to the side. I'm going to go in and see what I can do. So he walked into the building. And uh, this is pure, pure dad. There was a sign that said, uh, by the elevator, that said, uh, not for student use. And he thought, oh, I'm not a student. I'm going to use this. So he's standing there waiting for the elevator. And along comes a, a gentleman who says, may I help you? And, and so my dad said, yes, I'm here to see the dean. So he got to chatting with this gentleman. And and uh, they rode up in the elevator together. And the whole time, the, the gentleman is asking him questions about why he wants to be a doctor and what about this arm. And they had just a very nice chat. They got to the designated floor and got out of the elevator. And my dad said, can you direct me to the dean's office? And the man said, come on, I'll take you. So they went down. The man opened the door and then went behind the desk and sat down. He was the dean. The interview was over. He said, we need you. You're going to make a fine doctor. We need you. And he was in. It's an amazing story. You know, it's ironic that uh, Penn Medicine rejected your dad, but later requested all of his papers and the artificial limbs that he had uh, created and built and designed. Um, well, he went back and did graduate work there. After uh, after 10 years as a, as a country doctor, he went into Specialty. So he went to Newark for more training at Crippled Children's Hospital up there and then went to the 
Penn um, Graduate School of Medicine. And so as a, as a two-time graduate of Penn, I contacted them and asked if they would be interested, and they said yes. Of course, and they, and they should be, because he's, uh, he, he's an amazing man, amazing uh, uh, physician. And, you know, uh, I'm wondering, where did he get, the, I guess, what you would call uh, the moxie uh, to pursue and achieve his goal of becoming a highly yeah. skilled surgeon, given his devastating disability and injury? I mean, I know he was a, a, a lifelong uh, practicing Presbyterian. Did that have something to do with it? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure his faith had a lot to do with it. Um, because you don't survive electrocution to then squander your life. And I, I believe that he and his family had a very strong sense that he'd been saved for a purpose. You know, that, you know by the grace of God, he survived. Uh, mm -hmm. the, skill of, the skill of other doctors helped right. him. Um, and then, of course, you know, he, he went on to help others. Mm -hmm. Have you heard from people who had experiences with your dad and what kind of reaction you've gotten from them? Lots of people. I've heard from his patients. I've heard with people who worked with him at the various hospitals. Um, I've heard of, uh, from from former neighbors, people who knew him in the in the neighborhood, people who knew him back in Columbus. I've been getting correspondence from people who knew him 60, 70 years ago in Columbus. So um, and everybody has the same observation that he was compassionate and kind and truly interested in each one of them as a person. It would take him forever to get finished with his work because he he talked to people. He listened to them. He he did not uh, say, this is your 15 minutes in my office, out you go. And so it, people knew that if they went to his office, they'd have to wait. And they also knew that when it was their turn, that he would give them the same level of attention that he'd given everybody else. Yeah, the, uh, the interesting thing about your dad also is, um, and I've heard since I, I wrote and published the column, uh, his payment system, he really wasn't <laughs> concerned about getting paid, was he? No, he wasn't. <laughs> no, we, we, he did not go into this to become a wealthy man. And here, here's a story that will give you an idea. Many years ago, I had a, a delivery of some flowers here to my home. And the person delivering the flowers said, is this where Dr. Robbins used to live? I said, yes, I'm his daughter. So of course he started telling me, as, as all patients do, they tell me about what he did for them and they always have to demonstrate the part of the body that he <laughs> <laughs> So he told me his whole story. And then at the end he said, hmm, I guess I should have paid him. <laughs> you know, Dorothy, it 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 really it really has to hearten you when you hear you hear just how how your dad changed the lives of so yeah. many people. I mean, you know, we all loved our fathers, but maybe they weren't in a position like that to, yeah. you know, you don't hear how kind they were at some points, but I mean, repeatedly you're hearing yeah. about how how instrumental he was in helping and and, and maybe changing lives of others. Yes. Oh yeah. Yes, mm. absolutely. And um, he 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 would share he would share his experiences with other people, and uh, and and he was never shy about when 
you know, when you met him, the first thing you noticed was his arm. And so, um, you know, a lot of times grownups would be polite and not say anything about it, but children would always ask about it. And he, he was he was so patient with them. I've got one right here. So let me let me get my my aid right here. This is this is one of his arms right here. So here's the elbow. So here, 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 we're looking at this on video for those of you listening, but it it, yeah. it, it attaches at the elbow. It attaches. And yeah, it's right here. What is it and material made out of wood and fiberglass and fishing line and rubber bands? And he made it anatomically correct. And he had a fishing line that would come around and hook over his right shoulder. And he flexed the fingers on this by moving his right shoulder. So I'll show you what he did with kids. He would sit down on a low stool. So he's at their level and here's the hand. I have in the collection, there are dozens of these things because he was always improving it. This particular one, the fingers are stationary, but they were modeled after my mother's hand. My mother had to sit there and have her left hand molded because he needed fingers that would fit in a surgical glove. And then he put an articulated thumb on this thing. So here's what would typically happen. He would sit down with kids and they'd want to look at it and they'd poke at it. And they'd pull at it and they'd pinch it and they'd say, does this hurt? Can you feel this? And, no, no. So after they had done their damage to the thing, he would take the kid's hand and very gently, okay, there we go, grab their wrists with his hand so they could see how gentle it was and that it didn't hurt. And then after that, the kid was fine and he could go ahead and do what he had to do with his uh, examination and his corrections. Yeah, in the, in the 1930s and uh, 40s, um, artificial limbs were equipped with movable hooks. I think most of us are right. familiar with that old golden age Hollywood movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, you know, where the soldier comes home and he's missing both, both hands. Yeah. So they had those hooks, but they also had um, mannequin-like limbs, which had no practical purpose except for mm -hmm. their cosmetics. But in the mid-1950s, your father really was a pioneer in combining that, that mannequin, well, I should say the cosmetic hand that actually had moving digits, moving, moving mm -hmm. fingers. Um, right. How much of a pioneer was he? I mean, he didn't have micro motors that we have now or, or computer mm -hmm. uh, software that can move hands and limbs. I mean, how far ahead of his time was he on that? Doc? Oh, yeah, way out there. He was, he had the mind of an engineer. He loved physics. He loved mechanics. He loved to know how things worked. And um, so he was, he was fiddling with that. He was actually designing them even while he was still in the hospital uh, with his surgery and uh, um, working with them. So he was way out ahead. Uh, he was, uh, if you look at pictures of him, the, the picture on the front of that book was taken in about 1951. So you can see that he was already had um, already had working hands at that point. But you know, hands weren't the only thing he designed. Um, another thing he was very interested in was um, providing mobility and independence for people who had been handicapped in some way. And so he designed um, vehicles 
that could be used by a paraplegic or even a quadriplegic uh, where you could, uh, um, here's, here's one. And he, he, he would draw them and then he would make these scale models and he would write up long descriptions of it. So you had all the information, including all of the dimensions. And this one is designed so that a person in a wheelchair can use a wheelchair lift to get into the driver's side slide over and then everything is self-contained because he knew that a handicapped person driving long distances simply couldn't get out of the car and go into a restaurant go into a restroom go into a a, a, a motel so everything was self-contained this is just one of of dozens and dozens and dozens that he designed you know, Dorothy, uh, you know, listening to your dad's story and, and the horrifying accident and, and, and the result of that, I mean, he was going to be a surgeon prior to the accident. That was right. his goal. But it seems that he's made more of an impact as a surgeon than he would have prior if he had never had that accident. Talk a little bit about that. Isn't that an interesting observation? I hadn't thought about that before, but I guess you're right. The uh, the Lord uses us. Yeah, yeah. Out of out of uh, something bad, something good comes. And yeah. uh, you know, but when you're in the fog of the bad part of it, you have no idea. And the questions are why. And I know that uh, you know your father, uh, while he was convalescing after the accident, he he began a uh, a magazine, a Bible <laughs> study yeah. magazine, and he actually had subscribers. He was the editor. Yes, he did. Uh, publisher and and main writer of the of the magazine so until yes. he went to medical school so he was quite a man um dr robbins uh passed at age 88 in 2004 uh, but you can read his story in his book the life and times of a one-armed surgeon by morris a robbins md there it is on the screen for those of you uh listening you can come to our website and see all the video and pictures uh, dorothy uh, has uh, shown us. Um, and thank you, Dorothy, for being here. Uh, it's great to have you. And uh, you, your, your dad's story is a wonderful one. Thanks for having his book published. Well, you know, Dorothy, thank, you to, I, thank you to both of you. As, as, I, as I listen and I read JD's column and listening to your, to your uh, recollections of your dad, you know, the, the one-armed surgeon, but I, I suspect he was, he was well-armed. Yes. More than more than one armed uh, for somebody to overcome that and contribute and contribute to the medical world the way he has just unbelievable. Good point. Thanks. Well, that's all for today. Uh, see my column uh, on Dr. Robbins at BurlingtonCountyTimes.com. And while you're there, why not subscribe? It's just a few bucks a month, and you'll be supporting local journalism that brings you stories about people like Doc Robbins and others like it. Uh, I'm JD. And I'm Phil. For all of us here at the Papers, thanks for watching, listening, but especially thanks for reading.